Welcome to KUOW Speakers Forum. I'm your host, John O'Brien. This week, we're going to do something a bit different. We are going to dive into the theme of civic and cultural division. This episode is part of the Rebuilding Democracy Project, a collaboration between Humanities Washington, KUOW, Spokane Public Radio, and Northwest Public Broadcasting. Most of us knew the left-right divide was wide and widening in America, but did any of us think that our extreme divisiveness would lead to the sacking of the United States Capitol for the first time since the War of 1812, not by foreign forces, but by a band of self-described patriots, otherwise known as domestic terrorists, bent on preventing the certification of a presidential election? The answer is yes. A few of us did imagine that possibility, but not many. If we had imagined that outcome, if we had discussed it amongst ourselves and over the divide, could we have prevented the tragic assault? In this episode of Speakers Forum, we'll consider how we navigate the divides we face in the United States, personally and politically. I'm joined by KUOW's community engagement producer, Kristen Leong. We've both been listening for clues to the questions many of us have, especially in the wake of the Capitol attack. Questions like, why? What's next? And what must we do to have conversations that will prevent more tragedies? Hi, Kristen. Thank you for doing this. How are you? Hi, John. Thanks for having me. I am feeling cautiously optimistic, and I'm glad to be here. Oh, good. Can you tell me briefly why why you're optimistic? You know, I just I feel a bit of a lightness that I wasn't expecting since inauguration day. And so I'm just I'm trying to sit with that after after a long four years, after a very long fall, a long lame duck session. Yeah, I'm trying to enjoy a little bit of peace right now. Nice. Well, this will be interesting then because we're going to kind of go back over the last couple of months here. I know you're excited about what we have in store. Will you tell our listeners what we have coming up? Sure. Various elements have come together for today's show. Uh, One is that we are going to hear from Seattle's Eric Liu and Citizen University. We're also going to hear songs from Seattle's Bushwick Book Club. And we're also going to hear a conversation inspired by a project that's close to my heart. That's KUOW's Curiosity Club. First up, we're going to hear from Eric Liu, who was a speechwriter and domestic policy analyst in the Clinton administration. He's also the co-founder of Seattle-based Citizen University, an organization with a mission to build a culture of powerful, responsible citizenship across the country. Eric has taken his passion for civics to a pulpit of sorts. Citizen University hosts events called Civic Saturdays, which Eric calls a civic analog to church. He thinks and writes about how to heal a divided America. His most recent book is Become America, Civic Sermons on Love, Responsibility, and Democracy. Here he is reading an excerpt back in November, a week after the 2020 election. Become America consists of sermons that I delivered at Civic Saturday gatherings all around the United States, and I want to share a passage from one of them. Listen, open your hearts your ears, your eyes. Question your memories, your motives, your impulse to make yourself over. The souls of American folk will be saved not by church or synagogue or mosque alone. They will be saved also by simple civic habits of forbearance and friendship and openness and love. It's time to become humble, to become responsible, to become faithful to our creed, to become curious about what else, what other music we might make together. It is time, it is long past time to become America. As we still find ourselves digesting, examining the taste of something new, a new code to Memorize a new face to familiarize a new bed to lay in at night. 
new bed to lay in at night. Democracy spoke. What a voice, what a voice, what a beautiful sound. And if I sat on a cloud, I'd record every sound. Democracy spoke. What a voice, what a voice, yeah, it said something new. And if I sat on that cloud, I'd maybe spell it out for you. Democracy spoke. Democracy spoke. Democracy spoke. We dream in dividends and compound voices. That was Megan Krant singing a song she wrote for Bushwick Book Club Seattle's Become America-inspired event. Again, that was just after the election when there was this sense of relief among the majority of voters that Joe Biden and Kamala Harris would be our next president and vice president. Of course, we didn't know then what was coming next. Eric Luce spoke more recently in one of Citizen University's Civic Saturday events Here's the start of his message the week after the insurrection at the Capitol. Ten days ago, a violent, seditious mob overran the United States Capitol after the president had urged them to stop Congress from fulfilling its constitutional duty to confirm his defeat in the Electoral College. Can you believe I just said that? A notable word recurred through all the media coverage the day of the inauguration, I mean, of the insurrection. Terrible Freudian slip. The word in that coverage was sacred. It was said that, quote, the sacred temple of our democracy had been desecrated, that the presence of white nationalists and Confederate flag-waving thugs in the rotunda had profaned, quote, our sacred seat of power. But what exactly is sacred about the Capitol? 
What do we mean when we call it a temple? We don't mean anything about the supernatural or a god. We certainly don't mean that the people we send there to represent us are gods to be venerated. We mean simply this, democracy, government of, by, and for the people is a freaking miracle. Democracy works only if enough of us believe democracy works. A mutual collective leap of faith in our constitution and in each other. That's all that separates our republic from anarchy or autocracy. So what we sacralize is not the building, we sacralize a creed. We sacralize a complicated history of deeds that have forced us to face that creed, sometimes by redeeming it, sometimes by betraying it. The Capitol is where reconstruction began and also where it was gutted, where the Civil Rights Act passed and the Chinese Exclusion Act. The stars and bars in the rotunda the Confederate flag has been on proud display in the Capitol for decades in the flags of all the Southern states that incorporated its design into their own. White supremacists were leading members of the first Congress in 1789 and of the 116th Congress that adjourned two weeks ago. When we say the Capitol is sacred, we mean our agreement to try to make this thing mean something is sacred to us. This gathering today is an expression of that faith. It is a collective act of sense-making and searching that is not about dogma and fundamentalist certitude, but is about asking ourselves always, how can we become America? How can we become the land of the free, the home of the brave, the place where the people rule, where we are created equal with liberty and justice for all? We hope that this still can be achieved even as we face mounting evidence that it can't. Evidence that we are a sick, weak, exploitable, divided, duty-shirking, sacrifice-allergic, strong-man-curious mess of a people. A slightly different tone there. We've heard Eric Liu many times on KUOW. He's always inspired. I'm not sure I've ever heard that kind of almost anger from him. He goes on to lay out a path to recovery. He centers it on the Constitution, conscience, and coalition. We'll post the full event on our website. Here's how Eric finishes his civic sermon. Coalition turns conspiracy inside out. Where conspiracy secretly advances a crime, coalition works openly for goals you're not ashamed of. Coalition replaces a theory of faraway powers who control your life with the practice of your own power to change your life. Coalition breeds restraint and compromise instead of unbounded permission to lie and justify. Coalition feeds on information and fact, conspiracy on misinformation and fiction. These last few years, I was part of a group of leaders, writers, and activists many of whom I think are just flat wrong on many policy issues. But we banded together to defend democracy, to defend our mutual right, to fight out our differences the way the Constitution intended. What Georgia showed America on January 5th is that it is possible to build a cross-region, cross-race, cross-religion, cross-ideology, cross-generation coalition of courage, of conscience, of constructive citizen power, of democratic faith. Remember January 5th. Kate Tucker, who has led us in song today, also helps lead an organization called Brightheart in Nashville, Tennessee. I'll never forget when Kate said to me once, in response to the conventional wisdom, she said, we don't know if Tennessee is a red state. We do know it's a non-voting state. The same can be said of every state in the United States. When a third of eligible voters don't vote in even the best of years, and 80% don't vote in a typical local election, every jurisdiction in our country is a potential proving ground for a coalition of people who want the rule of law and democratic self-government. In this time of 1850s-style creeping disunion and 1950s-style McCarthyite paranoia, you might be tiring of talk of us and them. But even under less fraught circumstances, 
humans are always wired to split the world into us and them. So at Citizen University, we teach that civic religion properly understood offers the healthiest possible way to do that. The us is those who wish to serve, volunteer, vote, listen, learn, empathize, argue better, circulate power rather than hoard it, and accept the rule of law and the idea that democracy is a game of infinite repeat play in which you sometimes lose. The them is those who don't. It is possible to judge the them harshly, but it's not always necessary. For at any time, one of them can become one of us simply by choosing to live like a citizen. So we need to welcome more people in. This coalition for democratic citizenship at home is as necessary today as the creation of NATO was 75 years ago. Now we must contain and shrink the anti-democratic, the illiberal, and the authoritarian inside our borders. What can a parent do, a neighbor, a gig worker, a manager, a teacher, an artist, a child? What can each of us do to expand that coalition? We know this much. You can't do any of this alone. Learn the Constitution. Learn the arguments inside it. And know your own mind. Use every tool you have, intellectual and emotional, to awaken the conscience of people and of the people. Commit to the idea and the practice of coalition, hard and uncomfortable and dissatisfying as it may sometimes be. We have a long way to go, my friends, before we arrive at America. Let's carry each other there. Thank you. That was Tecla Waterfield singing a song she wrote for Bushwick Book Club Seattle. Again, that was inspired by Eric Liu's book, Become America. So Curiosity Club is KUOW's nerdy supper club. We like to think of it as like a book list book club. We bring strangers together around public radio stories, hoping that compelling storytelling and a shared meal can transform a group of very different strangers into a community. We've had four cohorts of the club so far, and um, excitedly, we are seeing that so far the answer to that question is yes. So what we're about to listen to next is a conversation that I recorded between two Curiosity Club members, Jerome Hunter, who is the co-founder of the Seattle School for Boys, and Melina White, who is the blogger behind the Seattle Conservative. Melina and Jerome met at one of our Curiosity Club dinners. This was a virtual gathering shortly after the 2020 presidential election. Days after the gathering, I was still thinking about this moment of tension between Melina and Jerome at the end of the dinner. Melina was insistent that we have to figure out a way to connect and understand Trump voters right now if we're going to move forward. And Jerome strongly disagreed. He said that he is putting his efforts into organizing with communities that share his values right now and that he doesn't feel like it is his responsibility to connect or understand people who don't believe that his life as a black man in America matters. 
I kept thinking about that moment. And in the spirit of Curiosity Club, we brought Melina and Jerome virtually back together to find out if a political disagreement could be the start of a conversation instead of the end of one. And what happened is this conversation that you're about to hear now. At 16 years old, Jerome Hunter was violently confronted by the police. He and his best friend Isaiah, who was also 16 at the time and is also black, were accused of breaking into Isaiah's suburban home. The boys were handcuffed, kneeled on, and forced to lay face down in the front yard. In that moment, being um, detained on the lawn with the officer's knee, um, the back of my neck with guns pointed at us, was this just realization like, oh my gosh, my life can be taken by someone that society is supposed to trust. The reverse of that is they don't trust us, but for no good reason other than how we look. You know, that was a pivotal point in my life of like, oh, okay, I need to really be alert. I need to be very conscious and conscientious of how I interact with folks. And that experience motivated me because I too am like in in my core an optimist. You know, the goal is to dismantle these ideas about people of color and do my best to dismantle systems of oppression. Jerome is the co-founder of the Seattle School for Boys, a middle school focused on problem-based learning and civic engagement. Jerome's dad is black and his mom is white. He says that being mixed race is a big part of why he's able to understand perspectives of people who may not be interested in understanding him. Shortly after the 2020 election, Jerome met Melina White at a KUOW Curiosity Club dinner. Curiosity Club is KUOW's nerdy supper club, testing the possibility that a shared meal and public radio stories can transform a group of strangers into a community. Melina is the libertarian blogger behind the Seattle Conservative. She and Jerome disagreed about whether or not it's worthwhile to try to understand the perspectives of far-right extremists, but they did find common ground around the perks of being multiracial. I have the privilege of being mixed-raced and gay and masculine of center, so I've been called pretty much everything you can think of throughout my life. I think I started to realize that it's acceptance. You know, you kind of expect those things to happen to you. You expect that you're going to be called the N-word from time to time. You expect, you know, someone like me to be called a dyke. It's just a part of your life. I get these wake-up calls. My girlfriend is white. And so, you know, I tell her things like that. And she's like, oh, my God, I can't believe this. And I think to myself and I say to her, oh, well, this is my life. Like, this is, I'm used to this. I'm used to this. But in the outside, it's just very shocking. And then you realize, oh, yeah, I shouldn't accept this as the norm. It shouldn't be okay that I walk through the world in this way. Melina says that when she shares her political views in queer or POC communities, especially in Seattle, she's often met with shock and sometimes even disgust. She says that more than one straight white liberal has told her that being a conservative is a betrayal to who she is as a lesbian of color. She says these comments don't face her and that she's going to keep voicing her most unpopular opinion. We have to do the work to understand why people voted for Donald Trump in the first place, and not just assume that everybody who voted for Donald Trump voted for him because they hate immigrants and they hate black people and they hate gay people and they hate transgender people. Jerome is firm in his stance that it is not productive to engage with people who do not believe that your life matters. For him, the insurrection attempt at the Capitol on January 6th validated his view that marginalized groups face legitimate danger in America. He said that the rise of domestic terrorism isn't about advocating for democracy. It's about advocating for white supremacy, which is why he's going to continue to focus on organizing from within communities that share his values. I don't really desire the other side to understand me per se. I, I think that I have to be true to myself, be true to my values, respect folks in the way that I'd like to be respected. And if the other side, and I'm putting that in air quotes, doesn't see the humanity in me or see me for who I am, that's kind of more their responsibility. I think there's just work that I need to do that's more important sometimes than trying to convince the other side to understand me. Melina and Jerome never changed each other's minds, and that's okay. The point of Curiosity Club is connection, not agreement. 
and the tension, if we're willing to talk through it, it's what our experiment depends on to connect strangers across seemingly unbridgeable divides. Melina is still shaking her head at both the right and the left while trying to find common ground with her Trump-supporting friends. Jerome still focused on showing his students that empathy is also a kind of civic engagement. Disagreements, Jerome says, don't have to divide us more. They can motivate us to make America better. And on that point, Melina agreed. We still can come together, country. We still can learn to live together and not agree on everything, but respect each other and build a stronger, healthier society. So I'm going to keep beating that drum and keep doing it. Melina White is the libertarian blogger behind the Seattle Conservative. Jerome Hunter is the co-founder of the Seattle School for Boys. I'm the producer of KUOW's Curiosity Club. To learn more about our nerdy dinner party and to find essays by Melina and Jerome, go to KUOW.org engage. In Seattle, for KUOW Public Radio, I'm Kristen Leong. What a great conversation, Kristen. And to me, it speaks to our need for models of how we can actually reach each other over the divides. I have personal experience with this within my family. I know a lot of people do. Are you seeing any particular methods that that help in this process of trying to have those conversations? Hmm. That's what we are trying to do with Curiosity Club. You know, these gatherings are really powerful for the small group of community members and editors and producers who join for these dinners. But by sharing these stories, we hope that the club is a model for how to talk to people who come from very different experiences, very different perspectives. Really, the foundation of the club is storytelling. And we start with KUOW stories. We start with very human multimedia stories, which are really an invitation then for club members to relate to those stories and then share their own experiences, right? So trying to create a framework where it is safe and inviting to share where you're coming from and also bringing together people around a genuine sense of curiosity around other people, which I think as we think about moving forward, it might just be curiosity that's going to bring us together. You know, we're always trying to think about how do we get people to understand our side? How do we get people to understand where I'm coming from and that I'm correct? I think if we focus instead on how do we get people to be curious again about the lives and experiences of other people, I think that might, that might be the trick. And it seems so simple, but it's actually really complicated and takes a, a real commitment to to empathy. It makes me think of the sort of meme of the Thanksgiving dinner table and avoiding talking about politics with your family. And that what we really need is the opposite of that. We need to be having the conversations over the dinner table when, when we can do that again. And you set a good example with Curiosity Club for how to have those conversations. So listeners, I encourage you to check out the link at our website, kuow.org speakers. There's a link to Curiosity Club there. You know, Curiosity Club, we root these conversations in stories, other people's stories, right? And so I think there's this impulse to be like, well... We all have very different and stubborn political opinions. How do We have to tell our own story. I think that if you start with somebody else's story first and you come to the table, how did you relate to that other person's story? What struck you about that? What questions do you still have about that? That it feels a little bit safer than just looking at someone across the table and being like, this is my story. Now tell me your story. You know, I was inspired to start Curiosity Club as I thought about my experience as a teacher. I was a middle school teacher for seven years, and over and over again, I was an English teacher. I saw stories, short stories, books, poetry, public radio features, bring together my class of, you know, 30-something kids from all different backgrounds 
because we were bonding over how we were relating to the curriculum. You know, great storytelling invites really great conversation. And so I think what I'm hopeful about Curiosity Club is, is we're bringing to the community what teachers everywhere already know, which is that very, very diverse perspectives and, and different kinds of people can come together. You just need a bit of a framework, and storytelling is a great place to start. Okay, let's circle back to Eric Liu now. Here's a conversation he had with KUOW's Ross Reynolds back in December. Eric, is there anything about the extreme divide we're experiencing right now that has led you to feel, hey, what I thought about the United States is wrong. What I thought about civics is just off base. Uh, no is the short answer. Um, I think what it has done actually is very usefully um, burned away some illusions uh, that we might have had about who we are and how divided we are. And, um, uh, but what it has also emphasized for me and for our work at Citizen University is that um, there's this foundation layer that people have forgotten to attend to. Um, and that is the layer of relationship and trust and rehumanization. Um, so much of what is most toxically divided in our politics um, is mediated, uh, in, particular, in particular social mediated, right? Uh, social media uh, fueled uh, where all the incentives are for all the worst kinds of behavior and the most extreme kind of articulations of worldview. Um, and even worse than that, I think uh, we've fallen into the habit of treating civic life and politics more and more like a spectator sport, um, as if we were simply audience. Uh, uh, maybe sometimes we get to do thumbs up, thumbs down in the audience, like in a coliseum, but, uh, um, but we don't regard ourselves as participants. And, um, and so I think what this time has laid bare is how we all need to remember what it's like to be a participant, a co-creator um, of democracy. Um, and to do so in a way that's grounded in relationship and trust. And your work is all about uh, not having it be mediated, have it be more direct and people talking to one another. But are, are we past the point where we can achieve that on a large enough scale to affect the giant divisions we have right now? Are people actually willing to have that unmediated one-on-one -on -one experience? I think people are not only willing to have it, they are hungry for it. Uh, people desire the invitation to it. Um, and um, and I think, you know, the more locally grounded you are, the more rooted in place you are, um, or region, um, the more possible it is to extend that invitation. Um, you know, the worst parts of our politics come at the national level, federal level, um, and at the level that is about mass media. Uh, but when you actually um, are in central Washington or eastern Washington or Puget Sound or wherever you may be, um, and thinking about what does this place mean to me and what are people hoping for? What are people scared of um, for the future of this place? That doesn't make division go away magically. People still have very sharply divided views about what the good life is, um, you know, in Yakima Valley or wh wherever. Um, but it's a little bit harder just to completely dehumanize and dismiss people when you're, when you're neighbors, when you're kin, uh, when you are... <laughs> one degree of separation removed from everybody um, in, in the conversation. Do you understand why people just look on politics as a spectator sport? And knowing that, what does one do to pull people in to be involved in it? I think the why has a lot to do with um, several trends. So one, of course, is just the way that everything, everything is uh, uh, done through the filter of media and technology these days. Uh, but also everything is um, done through the filter of um, commercial identity. Uh, we are customers. Uh, we, 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 are, we are paying customers and I want a good show. Um, and, and that's the mindset that we have. Uh, and I'm going to change the channel if this show bores me. Um, and I think that is, a, um, you know, that's many things, but that's not being a citizen. Um, you know, there's always a part of our life where that's appropriate to be entertained to seek distraction and entertainment, but, um, but to take responsibility for governing ourselves um, is about something other than that. And you know, in our work at Citizen University, um, we've been, we have this view that as much as we've been focusing in our politics these days on questions of structural change and structural reform of 
criminal justice or the tax system or the immigration system, um, that culture precedes structure. That culture is upstream of structure. And we've got to pay a lot more attention to the norms, values, habits, stories, um, and, and uh, patterns of behavior uh, that add up to a culture. Um, and whether we uh, humanize or dehumanize each other, whether we treat each other with curiosity and empathy and humility or not, whether we um, uh, show forbearance, whether we uh, release uh, the impulse to righteous certitude and embrace a little bit of room for, for doubt, um, those are cultural norms. That's not a matter of legislation. It's not a matter of policy. Um, it's a matter of us taking ownership of how we're going to deal with each other. And not only um, do I think it's possible, I think it's absolutely necessary for us to scale that sideways um, in circle after circle after circle, um, changing norms. Um, that's what we're trying to do at Citizen University in our work uh, around this state and around the country. Um, and we're not alone. I think what gives me hope and gives me the feeling that we're at the midst of this great civic revival is there are many, many organizations like ours, um, not least Humanities Washington, that are doing exactly the same thing with exactly the same intention and spirit and faith. Um, you know, when I say culture, I think when it comes to democratic culture, we've got to remember Democracy works only if enough of us believe democracy works. It is dependent upon our mutual belief that this thing should mean something and our mutual faith in each other's um, best selves. And, um, and that faith is not self-executing. We have to nurture it. And people like you and you know, radio, public radio stations, organizations like Humanities Washington, public libraries, other institutions that gather people have a special responsibility um, to cultivate that set of norms and worldview. Can all divides be bridged? Or are there some that are really not worth trying to bridge? Not all divides can be bridged. Like uh, what? what? What can't be bridged? I mean, look, if someone has a strong philosophical worldview um, that the less government, the better, uh, and someone has a strong point of view that um, we need a strong activist state in order to enact justice, um, those are hard to reconcile. Um, you may find areas and issues where they can split the difference and compromise 60-40, 70-30 on a particular policy, but th th those are um, worldviews that are intention. And, um, you know, we've got a project uh, that we're running out of the Aspen Institute um, called the Better Arguments Project. Um, and we're really trying to uh, remind folks that, uh, you know, it's okay to argue in civic life. As toxic and polarized as things may be, um, the thing that we need right now is not fewer arguments. We just need less stupid arguments. And, that, and, and I don't mean to be glib. Less stupid arguments means recognizing that America is an argument. America is a set of perpetual, unresolvable tensions between liberty and equality, between strong central government and local control, between color blindness and color consciousness, between pluribus and unum, right? These things, you can't resolve them finally on one side or the other. To be American, to engage in civic life, is to be in this tug of war, to be in this. And sometimes, um, like I said, you'll split the difference. And sometimes you'll be like, no, I draw the line here. I do not want to go there. That's one category of tensions. And then, of course, there's another set of divides that are not bridgeable in which, um, you know, if someone believes that Chinese people are per se animals from an inferior civilization, um, you know, we don't have a lot to agree upon. Um, but you know, I, 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 so, you know, time is up, time is finite. I'm not going to spend a lot of effort trying to bridge a divide with that person. At the same time, I want to caution against what I begin to hear a lot these days, and particularly among younger generations, which is, I refuse to engage with somebody who does not validate my identity, basically. Um, uh, and you know what, I, I, I don't refuse that per se. Um, I lose nothing by engaging with someone who thinks Chinese people suck. Um, I, you know, it doesn't actually make Chinese people suck for me to engage that person. Like I, if I engage that person though, and this is principle number one of the Better Arguments Project, not to win, but to understand. If I engage to, to be like, where is this worldview coming from? Do you really believe this? Is this coming from some trauma in your life? Is this coming from some, the way you were raised? Like what's going on here? And maybe the answer at the end of the day is this person is a sociopathic racist, in which case I say, God bless. I'm, I'm checking out. I don't need to engage you, you know. Um, but uh, chances are decent that there's something else more complicated going on. And, um, and I think each of us has to make a call when we want to take that leap and say, maybe there's something behind this person's repugnant 
rejection of my identity um, that is worth pulling on a little bit and, and, and unraveling. So there are some divisions that are extremely difficult, maybe impossible to bridge. What about kind of the fundamental division we see today between those who believe Donald Trump, believe he has been, uh, the presidency has been taken away from him, uh, believe his line of thoughts about COVID-19 and its transmission, believe him about not wearing masks versus the rest of people who feel very differently about it. Is that a bridgeable divide? And if so, how do you make the steps to do that? Um, you know, I think like every one of us, I have, it's not an angel and a devil on my shoulders, but I have these warring, warring impulses in me. I, there is a big part of my heart um, that wants to empathize and humanize. And there's a big part of my heart that wants to just own this idiot and just kind of show this person how stupid they're being. And, um, and so I don't want to give anybody the impression that uh, uh, either I am saintly about this or that uh, we should all be saintly about this. I think recognizing that you have these warring impulses in you um, is real. That's just being real with each other. And, you know, something like masks, um, look, I, I, I think, um, <laughs> I, I think to me, the argument, of course, there's an argument to be made on the basis of science uh, and, and put that to the side. That ought to be compelling enough, like that, that ought to end, end, the, end the argument. But, um, but some people think, believe President Trump more than they believe science. Yes, well, exactly. And I think that, you know, for, for those who don't want to hear science, um, I guess it just comes down to a simple question of, um, do you feel like we're being asked to wear a mask is a great enough infringement upon your liberty that you're willing to kill somebody, right? It, it kind of boils down to that. Are you willing to kill somebody so you don't have to be inconvenienced uh, by wearing a mask. And I think that's how we might see it. But I think those who say that would say, I'm not going to kill anybody. Okay. But they'll, just, they'll just deny the evidence that health officials say, and they'll kind of go with yeah. watching President Trump not yeah. wearing a mask. I think it's actually kind of easier with something, I mean, with things like COVID, um, COVID-19 does not care whether or not you believe in it. And so it will, in the end, uh, work its effect on people. Um, and we're seeing these tragic, tragic comic almost stories of um, people who were in total denial about COVID and then came down with COVID and then um, in the hospital bed are pleading with their caregivers and saying, I can't believe I denied this. It's real. Oh, my God. Um, and, um, and look, like I said, the virus doesn't care whether or not you believe in it. But the question is, um, this is just a matter of courtesy and responsibility. Um, I've heard people say, I'm ready to meet my maker. You know, I just don't want to be inconvenienced. If I get it, that's God's will. Um, and my message back to that is, it's not about you. I mean, I think that's the meta message. It's not about you. It's about everyone around you. And the question is, are you ready to send someone else to their maker? Are you ready to take the chance that you might send someone else to their maker? And, and if they say, I won't, then I'll say science. And if they say, I don't believe science, then I'll say, you know, again, so we're, we're, that, that's, that's a hypothetical discussion. Have you actually had that discussion and how has it gone when you raised those points? I've never had it to that much of a volley back and forth. Um, I've had it with folks where I'll say, hey, you know, I, I spend a fair amount of my time giving care to my 83 year old mother who is in treatment for cancer. And, um, and when there's people in her neighborhood or in her building who are not wearing a mask, um, I'm pretty not Seattle about it. I'm pretty not passive aggressive. I'm pretty straight up, go right up to them like, put on a mask, dude. Like, this is not okay. And, um, and sometimes they react, um, you know, negatively to that and don't like being told. And, uh, and other times they're like, oh, yeah, sorry, sorry. Right. But um, I, I think, uh, anyway, I, we're getting off the topic, I think. But I, I do think oh. that that question of, um, uh, you know, your, your initial question of, people who don't believe in science or don't believe in um, fact, like the counting of votes, um, the certified counting of votes, the certifications by Republican secretaries of state and uh, county uh, boards uh, around the nation. Um, I, I think this is, I mean, not only are those divides hard to bridge, I think those are dangerous. Mm -hmm. um, I, I think, um, you know, I think w when you get to a um, point where people want to need to 
believe in a set of conspiratorial fictions um, in order to feed their own identity. Um, that's a dangerous thing. Uh, but again, I would just go back to the other thing. I will not convince that person by citing science and by showing them lots of documents and so forth, right? Um, to me, when you get to a conspiracy theorist, you get to, to, to a hardcore Trumpist who thinks this election was rigged, um, you get to people who don't believe in COVID, I'm still interested in understanding the emotional drivers of that person's belief system and worldview. Because I yeah. think for the most part, these are not rationally considered. They are almost by definition, not rationally considered worldviews. They are driven by emotion, fear, anger, identity, belonging, loyalty. They want to belong to a team. And if the team believes X, and they're going to believe X. That's, as a, as a person uh, who disagrees with them on that thing, I shouldn't mock them too much because throughout human history, you know, people on the left have succumbed to that as well. People on the left succumb to that today. Everybody, if you're human, is prone to that kind of uh, self-delusion driven by some emotional need. And I'm curious about what drives a person's need uh, and belonging. Um, and it may simply be like, I don't, I want to conform. And I live in a part of uh, town or a part of the state or a part of the country where everybody around me makes a point of pride not to wear masks because our leader, Donald Trump, makes a point of not wearing a mask. And I want to be, I don't want to be a nonconformist. Um, that's a human impulse. And, uh, and I think we, um, sometimes you can, shame them through a debate and argumentation, but other times you've got to invite them into a different way of being. And uh, I think yeah, it's I'm possible, but I think it's hard. I, I kind of wondering whether City University is still able to do that. It, it's been established, it's nonpartisan, you've never really talked about politics, but have the extremes of Trump and the Republican Party that supports him and the large percentage of Americans that support him made it difficult for you to actually bring those people together with those who think differently to kind of come to some common understanding about what citizenship means about your overall goals to, for a great civic revival across the nation. Is that even possible with a divide at this depth? It is possible. I mean, Citizen University is uh, doing this work in ways, again, rooted in place. And so Civic Saturdays, which are these gatherings that we catalyze that are essentially a civic analog to a faith gathering, they started here in Seattle four years ago. They've since spread around the country. Um, we've trained people uh, like our colleague, Kristen uh, Leong from all around the US to lead these gatherings uh, wherever they live. Um, and what we have found um, is that when you have a Civic Saturday in Oklahoma City or Brownsville, Minnesota or Athens, Tennessee, um, places where you have a pretty substantial uh, share of, um, of believers in Donald Trump, um, uh, that if you lead with, we're gonna to come together and argue about Donald Trump, then you're not gonna get anywhere. But if you lead with, we're gonna to come together and ask each other, what are we called to do to hold our community together? What are we actually responsible for here? And, um, and what happens talk, when you do that? When you, when you get people who are perhaps Trump supporters in the room for a citizen university event, or I guess now virtually, what happens? Do you get very many people who are on that side of the political agenda? And what happens in the room when that, when that takes place? Uh, I mean, it depends where you are in the country. In Seattle, sure. we get very few. Yes. Uh, <laughs> uh, but in some of these small rural towns where some of the um, fellows we've trained are, are leading these gatherings, um, you get a pretty substantial number of uh, Trump supporters. And, uh, and what happens is they define themselves not just according to national politics. They define themselves according to whether or not they're pulling together to help make sure um, that the uh, you know, struggling Main Street in their small town is going to survive. They pull together around whether um, uh, you know, th there's going to be enough support for the aging um, uh, farmers in their community who can't work anymore but don't have um, family support. You know, they, they pull together on human things. Um, and I want to amend one thing you said earlier in your question, which sure. is you said these are not about politics. Not, not, that's not exactly true. They are about civic life and the way that we show up in civic life, part of which does absolutely involve electoral politics and candidates and policy arguments and so forth. Um, and part of which is simply about, uh, again, the ways that we um, build bonds of trust and affection in a community uh, that can enable us to govern ourselves and do things together. And, um, and so, you know, I, what we've learned 
here is that, um, you know, the president is not the country. The national government is not the country. Um, all around this country in communities all across the state of Washington, um, even though there's a temptation now for things to get nationalized and for uh, small town police forces to um, choose sides in the way that Donald Trump and others would like them to choose sides between Black Lives Matter and Blue Lives Matter and fit, create a false binary um, you know, on these things. Actually, people in a small town who have to look out for each other, who have to take care of each other, who have to deal with their differences uh, in different ways, um, are still trying to make things work. Um, and we are finding that around the state and around this country. And can they do that and still keep their own views about President Trump? Can, can people who believe in that worldview still get together with others who believe entirely the opposite and move forward on, on, on the goal? Absolutely. I mean, look, we're, we're, there's a background assumption even in, in our conversation so far that um, all Trump supporters are, um, well, let, let, me, let, me, let me say it in the affirmative. Um, I, I said in Seattle when we had Civic Saturdays, there aren't a whole lot of Trump supporters, but, um, but there's more than zero, right? And we think about who in King County voted for Donald Trump, um, both in 2016 and, and uh, in, in 2020, um, they are not just aggrieved um, hillbilly elegy, Appalachian, um, you know, poor white people. Um, there are plenty of folks here in the top 3%, top 2%, top 1% of income distribution um, who are fully on board the Trump train uh, because their 401ks and their portfolios have been doing great these last four years um, because they love to see um, the conservative judges uh, he's putting on the courts uh, across the land uh, because they believe that he's been um, you know, a steadfast supporter uh, uh, of uh, their cause, whatever it might be, whether it's an economic cause or a, a cultural religious cause. Um, and so um, I, I think the, the picture that we have in our head, um, I guess I want to caution against having a picture in our head um, sure. I, you know, um, of what a Trump supporter is. What I want to have, and I think about um, you know, my wife was uh, Janae Kane, who's the co-founder of Citizen University. She's from South Louisiana. Um, and her siblings and nieces and nephews um, all in Louisiana there, many of them are Trump supporters. Um, many of them are, um, are people who are at best intermittent mask wearers and, uh, and intermittent listeners to CDC guidance about traveling during holidays or during pandemic surges and so forth. Um, and do they have frustrating conversations sometimes? You bet. Uh, are they siblings? You bet. Have they had to navigate hard, painful, happy, joyful, complicated human things as siblings facing life challenges of health and uh, accident and fate and fortune, good and bad? Yes. Um, and so I see their faces uh, and I see them. I think about uh, an uncle and an aunt of mine who've been hugely um, supportive uh, to my family during uh, my mother's uh, cancer journey. Um, and, uh, and as far as I understand, at least back in 2016, uh, they voted for Trump. Um, and, uh, and that's just not what we talk about. That's sure. not, not, you know, we might talk about ways in which our worldviews are different, and, uh, but th th that doesn't force a divide in a way that I think media makes us want to think it's going to force a divide. We've been through a civil war. We've been through all the dissension and violence of the 1960s. We've been through the Great Depression. It's not as though we're at a new moment in, where, where there are political divides and, and divides between people in our country. But is this moment, it feels qualitatively different, having lived through a little bit of that myself. Do you think that his, looking back historically, are we just making too much of a big deal about these divisions and we've been through worse and come together? Or is there something really different about this moment? I think there is something different about this moment. I don't think, I don't treat this moment lightly. Um, uh, I'm not an alarmist. I don't think we're on the edge of civil war. Um, and I was born in 68, so I didn't particularly experience uh, but, uh, th that, that time. But, um, you know, there are some ways where things aren't nearly as bad as they are, were in 68, 69, 70, 71. Um, uh, you know, and you don't need to belabor the facts of Kent State and assassinations and so forth. Um, but what is bad and alarming about this time 
um, is how completely self-reinforcing some of these divisions can be uh, for the reasons that we've been talking about. Uh, because so much of social media and ideologically segregated opinion media um, on cable news um, is creating closed loop worldviews uh, and therefore forcing upon us an epistemological crisis, as President Obama recently put it. Um, where for those who are not familiar with the term, could you, what, what is an epistemological crisis? We, we don't know the same things anymore. <laughs> we don't have a common set of facts anymore. Um, and so it's really hard to talk about common purpose or uh, even you know, have useful arguments if, we, if, if I say this is um, uh, red and you say it's blue, or I say this is up and you say it's down, we're, that, that's a really hard starting point. Um, and, and that is um, why we're so committed at Citizen University to getting people off their devices um, and getting people to rebuild not only the sense of trust, but the sense of responsibility. Um, you know, you have people who will spend all day in Seattle, who will spend all day on social media, you know, showing how progressive they are and virtue signaling and tweeting out and doing all this stuff. Um, and then they'll walk, you know, home uh, or, or, or walk down the street right past uh, unhoused people. They'll walk right past, um, you know, uh, kind of parts of our town uh, that, that have still not been rebuilt since the, um, uh, the, all of the struggles of the summer. And so um, taking responsibility starts with taking responsibility with what's around us right now. And, um, and I think that's, um, when we do that, we can stave off these impulses toward, toward um, you know, irre irreconcilable differences. The other thing though that is different and challenging about this time but I also think of it as an opportunity um, compared to certainly the Civil War, compared to the early New Deal years, compared to um, even the, the Civil Rights era or the late 60s. Um, what is different this time uh, is that everybody's in the arena, okay? So the Civil Rights era, public life was still defined by and its voice was primarily the voice of white people, generally privileged white people. Right, your three channels were all anchored by three white men, um, and that created the kind of epistemological consensus because we all watched one of those three channels narrated by one of three white men uh, on the evening news, um, and that was a, a very different time, in a sense, a much simpler time. And today, because of social media and the democratizing technologies, but also because we are a far more inclusive society, um, and people who are not white, people who are not men, people who are not old, people who are not credentialed, people who are not from elite institutions can have a voice, can create a platform, can get their voice out there. It's just, it's an order of magnitude more noisy than it used to be, right? Yep. Um, and there's an order of magnitude uh, more difficulty in trying to create consensus. That's challenging, but I also think that's an opportunity. Like we are now trying, and I've said this in other contexts, we are, this is a case of first impression. We are trying for the first time in human history to create a truly mass multiracial democratic republic in which everyone gets to participate and everyone gets to shape the culture and have their voice heard. That hasn't been tried yet. And of course it's gonna be noisy. Of course it's gonna be um, crazy sometimes. And of course it's going to yield um, not just presidents like Donald Trump, but the kind of junk popular culture we see um, on every platform. Is that but not the source of- create a, a, an opportunity um, for us to ask, is democracy possible? And the only way it's gonna be possible is if we take responsibility and don't just be spectators and trolls and noisy commenters. I, I, I wanna throw it over to, to Kristen because we're over our time already, but I, I could talk to you all afternoon, Eric. You always make me feel better when I speak to you. But Actually, I'll just do that now. I, I, Kristen, you should jump in here. You've been listening and closely. I to ask one question. Sure. Uh, uh, is the final product here is audio, not video, correct? Correct. Okay, great. Because yes. I, I realize I haven't been looking at the camera. I've just been looking at your square on the screen. And so. Don't worry. Uh, if, it, if it was video, you look fabulous. <laughs> <laughs> Kristen, and go I ahead. I unfortunately have to leave to go uh, take my mom to a doctor's appointment shortly. So Okay, Kristen, get some questions. So real fast, Eric, um, you and I are both bicultural. Um, I believe you're a first generation American. Is that right? I, I uh, My terminology is second generation. Second I, gen? I, I'm, I'm the child of immigrants. Um, 
as a person with footing in two different cultures, how is that informing your work, thinking about your work in Citizen University, bringing people together? How does your race and culture and being from a family of immigrants inform the work that you're doing now? It's such a great question, Kristen. I think, I think being the child of immigrants, being Chinese American, Asian American, absolutely has shaped the way that I approach this work and has shaped the fact that I do this work. Um, uh, you know, I think it's not only being a child of immigrants and straddling Chinese and uh, American um, identity, uh, but it's also the fact that Chinese American or Asian American identity in general itself sits between the two great poles of race and race conversation in the United States, that we are neither black nor white, and we see the world in terms literally and figuratively neither black nor white, right? And so it's always led me to look for um, the shades in between. It's also always led me um, to think about um, fusion and hybridity. Um, to me, you know, what makes America great is not some quest for purity, racial purity, ideological purity, religious purity, whatever, right? What makes America great is the fact that we've always been, and people like you, Kristen, embody this, and people like me, and actually when you get down to it, every single person, people like you, Ross, everybody embodies this, hybridity. We are amalgams of incredibly different sources and strains of culture and voice and cuisine and worldview and moral reflex and everything. Um, and we've got to be able to see that complexity and embrace it, right? And that, that shapes my worldview about this work and why I believe fundamentally that um, it's important for us to get this right in the United States because, um, you know, we, we do things here that the rest of the world has not yet contemplated simply because we are the rest of the world put together. Um, and that's not all good stuff, right? We create conflicts here uh, and dysfunctions and, um, and, and sociopathy here of a kind that the rest of the world hasn't seen yet precisely because we are as diverse as we are. Uh, but we can also create um, a new kind of synthesis. Um, and to me, uh, civic life in the United States works because beneath that cultural synthesis, beneath all of that hybridity of our different styles of song and music and worldview and philosophy um, is a common creed. It's the only thing we have in common here in the United States and a set of beliefs that even when we are disappointed in them, even when we feel like they've been betrayed, liberty and justice for all is still something we quote and equal protection of the laws is still something we demand and uh, of the people, by the people, for the people is still something we insist upon. And uh, I, I, you know, my parents came from China. They don't insist upon that in China. Uh, that, that is an American idea, and it's our American inheritance to try to make that idea happen and to close the gap between those high ideals uh, and the low state of our actual union right now. And, um, and so I think being Chinese American um, makes me appreciate that um, uh, all the more. And that's all the time we have. Thank you for inviting me to be here today, John. Uh, this is such a thought-provoking way to start the new year. Here, here. Thank you for doing it. A pleasure to share the mic with you, Kristen. Thank you for your work creating sometimes hard, always meaningful Curiosity Club conversations. And many thanks to Eric Liu, Janae Kane, and everyone at Civic University for sharing their work. And also to the team at Bushwick Book Club Seattle, and thank you to Ross Reynolds for his interview with Eric Liu. We have links to all the events on our website at kuow.org speakers. This episode of Speakers Forum was part of the Rebuilding Democracy Project, a collaboration between Humanities Washington, KUOW, Spokane Public Radio, and Northwest Public Broadcasting. Go to KUOW.org slash engage to learn more about the project. We are going to go out now with a song by Kat Beulah, which she wrote for Bushwick Book Club Seattle's event inspired by Eric Liu's book, Become America. She calls it a self-righteous song about not being self-righteous. Thanks for listening. One, two... Justice advances to take hold You're mounting an army to answer the call 
start with your friends? Or did you cancel them all? Cause nobody's woke, everybody's still waking. Nobody's gonna give what they believe has already been taken. The method is the same, no matter the mission. If you wanna win, you gotta be willing to listen. Soften, you will only make it worse. An eye for an eye leaves the world without eyes, and nobody ever changed their mind because they were ostracized. Nobody's woke. Nobody's woke. Everybody's still waking. Everybody's waking. Nobody's gonna give. They believe it's already been taken. Everybody's waking. No matter the mission. If you wanna win, you gotta be willing to listen. Fiddle. Nobody's woke. Nobody's woke. Everybody's still waking. Everybody's waking. Nobody's gonna give what they believe has already been taken. Everybody's waking. No matter the mission, if you wanna win, you gotta be willing to listen. Yeah, nobody's woke. Nobody's woke. Everybody's still waking. Everybody's waking. Nobody's gonna give what they believe has already been taken. Everybody's waking. The method is the same. No matter the mission. Oh, you gotta be willing to listen